Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential. We are back for 2022. Happy New Year to you, bringing you the latest royal news and views right here on Mail Plus. I'm Joe Elvin and we've got lots of royal news to discuss, so let's go straight to it with the Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English. Rebecca, the major story this week has, of course, been Prince Andrew again. He's been trying to have a civil lawsuit in York struck out. It concerns the claims by Virginia Jufri that he sexually abused her when she was 17. He, of course, denies all allegations. As we record this, we're still waiting to hear whether it will go to trial, but his hopes of striking it out there are hanging by a thread. You're absolutely right. You once again dominated uh, the royal landscape this week. And I was actually on that conference call uh, when the hearing was held in New York uh, on Tuesday, in which, as you rightly say, Andrew's lawyers were attempting to get the case uh, dismissed before it even come to trial. And uh, it was a pretty brutal and bruising encounter for them. Um, The judge made very clear he had short shrift for all of the arguments they were putting forward, uh, the most prominent of which was that um, uh, Mrs. Giffray had uh, agreed a previous settlement with uh, Jeffrey Epstein for half a million dollars, which they believed Uh, in which they believe she waived her right to take any future action against any other potential defendants. But as I say, the judge made very clear he didn't agree with that at all. And although he has reserved his judgment, and so we will hear it pretty soon, um, I think if you're a betting man, I would be happy to assume that it's not going to go in Andrew's favour. Rebecca, you have written that today he might settle. Yeah, I think this is a very, very interesting development I've revealed in the mail today, which is that a settlement is on the table. It's not being actively discussed yet because Andrew's lawyers do think they've got another uh, few legal avenues they could go down, but it's certainly not being dismissed. Now, of course, that wouldn't give Andrew the benefit of uh, clearing his name, which is what he says he desperately wants to do. But I think Andrew's lawyers are very well of well aware of what they describe as the attritional um, effect that this is having on the royal family. And of course, the points were made to me that in the US, 99% of these kind of civil litigations do end up being um, being decided and agreed between the parties out of court. And this could very well be one of them. So I think on this, watch this space. And a veteran of the Grenadier Guards, of which he is the regiment's colonel, called for him to have the role taken away from him. Will the Queen and her courtiers be taking notice of things like that, do you think? I think they will. I mean, obviously, this has been an issue rumbling since 2019 when Andrew decided to put his kind of public duties into abeyance while he focused on his efforts to try and clear his name. Um, And while we've heard kind of certain kind of elements of disquiet over the years, I think those are growing louder and louder because the military feel that it is a very unsatisfactory situation. And I have to say, I do think this is something that Buckingham Palace will be listening to. And to be honest, I suspect they'll be rather hoping that Andrew will do the kind of 
decent thing and just step back of his own volition and allow them to continue their very, very important relationship with the military with another member of the royal family in position. He was also noticeably not in the photographs on a family skiing holiday over Christmas. He wasn't. So we saw pictures of his ex-wife, Sarah, along with uh, their daughters and their husbands and uh, new children um, out in Verbier. Now, obviously, his family are innocent parties as much as anybody else in this. I'm not sure it was the best look to be doing that while the case was active in New York. But I mean, I wrote a story, gosh, it must be about three years ago now, in uh, which I said that Andrew was unlikely to ever leave the country again, uh, particularly in terms of going to America, but pretty much anywhere else, until he had conclusively um, sorted out the issues uh, involving Virginia Giffray, uh, whether that be the civil litigation or the kind of continuing FBI investigation, who have, as we know, asked to speak to him as a witness to Epstein's crimes, and and that hasn't happened yet. So, again, I I, I can't see him uh, daring to um, poke his nose out of the country until things have been sorted out once and for all. Thank you, Rebecca. We'll be back with her in just a minute. But for now, let's bring in my panel. Joining me today are two old sparring partners, writer and historian Dr. Tessa Dunlop and the Daily Mail's diary editor, Richard Eden. Welcome to you both. Let's start with you, Richard. The full case hasn't even started and already looks pretty ugly. Um, Not just the claims, but Andrew's lawyer's attempts to shut it down. It really has been horrendous, hasn't it? I mean, it's hardly a happy new year for Prince Andrew. I Again. Mean, the, the impression <laughs> yeah. I get so far is, is the judge in New York is not going to throw out this case. And if he doesn't, you know, Prince Andrew will be faced with two possibilities. One, he settles with his accuser. Or two, it goes to a, a full trial. And both possibilities are horrendous. Do so you have a hunch? Ways. I think, as Rebecca reported um, today he may have to settle, frankly, because, you know, can you imagine, we've got this wonderful year ahead celebrating this unprecedented platinum jubilee for the Queen, and then it would be dominated by headlines day after day about this, frankly, sordid case. And Mm. the royal family just, they just can't have that. So, I mean, Tessa, whatever happens if this case gets struck out or it goes ahead, it's, it's not a good look for Andrew. Do you have any sympathy for him? He's in a pitiful position. I think it's hard to have sympathy with him when he didn't express any sympathy for Epstein's victims when given the chance by Emily Maitlis in that very public interview, which we've now discovered they rehearsed. You know, it wasn't even like it was sort of ad lib. You know, do you have anything extra to add? I think I've got that covered, <laughs> chin wobble. I think I've you done know. very well. Yeah. So, um, uh, no, but do I have sympathy for the broader royal family? I do, actually, on this issue. We've all got an errant uncle, perhaps not in quite the same mode or style, but all that kind of relation that you're not in full control of. But this is a family which has a very public face. It's a family that doubles up as an institution of state, and therein lies this giant conundrum in the Queen's platinum jubilee year when she is 95 and frail it just couldn't be worse timing well it's interesting you've written in your column richard you know this big royal year and you think that he still believes andrew that he could make a comeback it really is bizarre but i still think he lives in a bit of a fantasy world and i think he's kept telling his mother um oh don't worry we'll see this off whatever 
And the, the story that was in my column was that he set up this sort of scheme and um, pitch at the palace to help budding entrepreneurs get investment. And he's kept it going. And it's going now. It employs three people. It's got hundreds of thousands of pounds of funds. And it plans to resume as soon as uh, the pandemic's over, in their words. There's no acknowledgement of Andrew's troubles. So I think he genuinely thinks that he'll be able to resume his public life once this case is out of the way. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think this time last year we were discussing that how big a distraction can this mm. be as this important royal year comes. And I think some of us thought that perhaps this matter would have been dealt with, but it's just becoming a bigger distraction. It's a giant PR case. And every time he tries to scuttle it on some technicality, it looks worse. Yeah. He may as well settle because actually he's done the equivalent by trying to claim she lives in Australia or, you know, she'd already been paid off by Epstein, who he's also saying in the same sentence, you know, he didn't have any doings in that context with. So the whole thing does stink. What's interesting, I think, from his point of view is that he hasn't front-footed it in terms of saving his family. I'm surprised he hasn't said, look, I'm going to renege on those titles just to make it easier for, for the Grenadier Guards, for the Queen at the moment, while the Sword of Damocles is hanging over my head and while he's absolutely said he's, he's innocent. You can still say you're innocent, but say, look, I want to take the pressure off my family. So I'm going to sit right back and, you know, hand over those titles, even if it's just temporarily. And he hasn't done that, which is interesting. It says quite a lot about him as a man. Uh, and it says a, a lot about him just absolutely being convinced that, that he is innocent. Uh, he's, he's, that, that's, that's the only note he's struck all the way through. And, and remember, remember that he still may be. That's the point. We just don't know. She's made these claims. He hasn't been accused of any crime whatsoever. This is a civil case. And, and then he's in this sort of very uh, difficult position of what to do next. But if there is a settlement with no liability, yeah. do you think that in the media, cynical of me, can't see that ending the story in the media. Do you think it will calm things down? I think that he has to face the facts, which is that if he comes to a settlement with his accuser, that is it. There is no way back to public life at all. He can appear at no public event and have nothing to do with the royal family from there on. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that Charles is just chomping at the bit to sort of like make that official... I'm sure he is, yeah. and, and William as well, that it's, yeah. you know, the risk of damage to the royal family is so great. Yeah. Oh God, it's sort of grimly fascinating, isn't but it? But the but other let, thing that, that history tells us about the House of Windsor is that to, to protect the institution, they will absolutely shut down a family member if they have to. You need to look no further than David, dear David, Ed, Edward VIII. You know, that is what will happen to protect the institution, come what may. I'm afraid. It's a strong statement. Let's, but we'll stay tuned. There'll be more next week, I'm sure. But let's return to Rebecca English now for more of this week's Royal News. Rebecca, there was a royal security scare over Christmas. Another one. What can you tell us about that and what's being done about it now? Yeah, this was a really serious incident. So on Christmas Day, a 19-year-old man was arrested by police and subsequently detained under the Mental Health Act after he was caught armed with a crossbow scaling a perimeter fence at Windsor Castle. Now, that happened at the Long Walk, which is um, fairly near or in the vicinity of the Queen's private apartments. And it subsequently emerged this individual had made a truly disturbing social media video that was sent to his friends in which he made threats to kill the Queen. 
Now, of course, I think it's really important to stress in fairness to the Metropolitan Police that what happened on Christmas Day shows actually the security that's in place does work. And unless we're willing to put these royal residences behind 20 foot high walls, you know, with armed police every couple of yards, which obviously we don't want to do, then there will be points at which people were are able to scale the initial perimeter fences. But of course, the police pick this individual up straight away. So I think it's full marks to them. But what it does remind us of is that we do need to be vigilant on these issues. And when people such as me are writing about them or you know, uh, anti-monarchist uh, anti campaigners are griping about the cost of security. It does remind us that the royal family uh, do have a very real and present danger um, when they go about their day-to-day -day lives. And Prince Charles has been speaking again about environmental issues where he also appeared to extend something of an olive branch of sorts to his son, Prince Harry. Was that the intention? And do you think it will be received in that way? You're right. So Prince Charles has written an article or an essay, I should say, about uh, environmentalism and climate change issues for American magazine Newsweek. And I think very notably, as well as praising his late father for the work he did in this field, he also praises both his sons, William and Harry, for inheriting uh, his mantle on this. And I, and I don't think that's... Uh, that's a coincidence. Um, uh, you know, relationships with Harry are, are still really poor. I do think this is an olive branch to his younger son to show that he is still loved and he is still valued. How that will be received is, is anyone's guess. Thank you, Rebecca. Tessa, let's discuss Charles's message right now. It might have been a, it's a very nice gesture, but does it have any real significance in, in healing this rift? If he'd really wanted to front foot and nuzzle up to Harry, I think he'd have put Harry above William. Because what he did was he... he but does that breach any kind of protocol? I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a lay person. I, I'm just saying, if, if yeah. you believe all the gossip in the media, you know, that that photograph apparently caused such offence, the one of the Queen... Um, which I, I found totally understandable. This was about the, the, the line of succession. So there was the, the monarchs, queen pictured yeah, yeah. with Charles, with William and with George. And I think the timing of it was sensitive. She, I think Meghan was pregnant or, I don't know, Archie was due or something. And, and then they took umbrage, apparently. Um, now, if you want to correct that balance, you could in this letter, which is nothing about the line of succession, just say, I commend both my sons, Harry and his net carbon charity ambitions, etc., and also William with Earthshot. So he could have done it that way around. He didn't. Primogenitor, convention, oldest son, loyalties. Who knows why not? Well, but that I would have been quite a strong statement for William to, to swallow as well. Uh, but I would argue it will take quite a strong statement in order to get, from what we gather, um, Harry re-engaged in, in, a, in a conversation. What yeah. do you think, Richard? I think Charles has tried to stay neutral on this whole affair, but is that sustainable? I think how Charles has reacted has been incredible, frankly. I mean, despite all the provocations, all the, I mean, great unpleasantness of the Oprah Winfrey interview. I mean, the things that Harry said there were just terrible, really. And Charles hasn't responded. And when he has, he's done so in this magnanimous, very regal way, I would say, and tried to be as friendly as possible. And I think that's, that's his aim, is to try to keep Harry on side and, and bring him back. But if you're feeling wounded, I don't know if you've ever felt like a victim in your life, Richard. I can't believe you have, but who knows? Um, That's a whole other show. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> X-rated, I feel. Um, but 
you want more than just a regal silence and a sort of, you know, fair play, you know, it'll all come good in the, in the wash. You want an apology. You want an acknowledgement of the cause of your pain, you know, the, the parenting pain that Harry talked of. Well, do you seriously think that Prince Charles is going to give an interview no, apologising to Harry? For being the worst I don't, father. But, but you say, you know, I think he's been simply superb. But we know that he's not gone... If he wants to make it up with Harry, he's he's not gone far enough for their... To, to meet their Californian sensibilities. I'm just, you know, stating what I see. I, I'm not blaming Charles. I probably wouldn't either. Oh, God damn it, why should I have to, really? But that's, they, they want more than that. They're feeling bruised. They're feeling like victims. They are, in their, in their narrative, they're victims. Let's be frank here. Prince Harry is lucky that any of his family speak to him at all. Meghan appears to speak only to her mother. That's yeah. the only member of her family. And in Harry's case... They're doing their best to, to be kind, frankly. But... I bet you Kate, diplomatic Kate, sent them a Christmas present. Well, I'm sure Archie and Lilybet mm. speak to him. Yeah. So there's them. <laughs> Maybe. Lilybet doesn't right? speak yet. I don't know what kind of baby you ever gave birth to. Very, very, very <laughs> precocious one. Tessa, we heard about the security scare at Windsor Castle. Now, obviously, all sorts of criticisms and speculations are always raised about security costs. But it seems that this would mean that they're valid costs. It does seem kind of sloppy, given that there was no expense being um, paid for Sandringham, which was shut down. And uh, we all knew that any sort of royal action over Christmas was going to be in Windsor, which of course is a much easier target. You know, it's right just off an offshoot of London. It does seem extraordinary that somebody, clearly I don't know, a curious individual with a rope ladder and an unidentified, not missile, but, you know, weapon of some sort, was able to scale a, a perimeter wall. But, but let's keep this in context. Windsor Estate is large and there are many perimeter walls and he was apprehended pretty promptly. But Richard, I, I believe you've got a theory on the timing of this. Well, all I said, and I've been getting abuse on social media, frankly, oh, for about again. two weeks as a result. <laughs> this is Richard the victim. Yeah. Can't pour yeah. it out. But no, all I said was that I do think Harry and Meghan have contributed to this sort of hate speech, frankly, you know, with these accusations of racism and all this unpleasantness has encouraged hate towards the royal family. No. And one but of the main threats to the royal family always comes from um, deranged individuals, from people with, um, you know, an axe to grind and this sort of thing. And in this case, this is what seems to have happened. But I think they are um, dicing with danger, if frankly. If I'd seen that on your social medias, I too would have had a bit of a pop at you, to be honest, Richard. You can't pin that on Harry and Meghan. As you made the case, often curious individuals, I'm going to call them rather than deranged, I mean, one even snuck into the Queen's bedroom, but when Harry was still probably in short trousers, I can't remember, but a couple of decades Thankfully back. not armed with a crossbow. No, but right in her bedroom rather than just scaling a perimeter wall. So I think mm. we need to keep this in perspective, and I think you need to hold back on blaming some kind of, you know, agenda coming from across the Atlantic. Well, well no, I think they need well, to hold back on this sort of well, inflammatory let, let's speech. Let's move on to the other interesting story about Meghan and Harry this week in the Archwell Foundation. Now, this week, we've, you know, despite all the fanfare and the fancy websites and all the amazing deals, are we right to feel a bit surprised that it's raised less than $50,000 in its first year? It was a surprising story, um, but it, it seems to be a reflection of the fact they've taken their time to establish it and with the pandemic and everything. I mean, with all charities, I remember writing about how Prince Harry's um, charity for orphans in Africa, Centabale, that also spent a lot of money initially. And I think when you're setting up a, a charity, it does cost a lot mm. to start with. 
Um, but are you actually sticking up? Yeah, there? I was about to say this is staggering. <laughs> no, I'm Tell a us bit. more. Uh, no, yeah. just to, to put yeah. the context. But what will be fascinating to see is how much they raise in the future. Um, I mean, in, in the case of the Royal Foundation with William and Catherine, once Harry and Meghan left, they started getting far more money. So we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how much Harry and Meghan raise. Mm. I think it's very easy to be cynical, but let's hold on to the fact this was a set-up year. You know, costs way outstrip any profit of any sort in a set-up year. And I'm also going to ask you to hold your horses and not have very high expectations for next year's uh, financial report, because, of course, this has been their maternity paternity year with Lilibet. We have, of course, I think Harry's biography to look forward to this year. So I mean, there are had, other irons in the fire. I had no idea until I did the show how hard it is to be a royal. It's <laughs> just, it's just coal face. 24-7. Non-stop. Come on. Let's move on to some other royals now. The Duchess of Cambridge turns 40 this very weekend. Many happy returns. And she's come a long way from the St. Andrews student we first got to know nearly 20 years ago. Since marrying William, her major focus, other than her family, has been on her early years project. Jess King took a look at what she's been doing and finds that Kate's ambitions for it might be bigger than you realised. I wanted to understand what more we could do to help prevent some of today's toughest social challenges and what more we could do to help with the rising rates of poor mental health. For nearly a decade, the Duchess of Cambridge has focused her attention on how our early years shape our future, but also our wider society. The Royal Foundation Centre for Early Childhood is a relatively new arm of the Cambridge's charitable body and will include research, collaborations and campaigns. In 2018, Kate visited the University College London world-leading neuroscience research centre to learn more about how children develop emotionally and socially. She met Professor Eamon McCrory, an expert in the field who says her initiative is profoundly important. She's not choosing this because it's easy. Um, it's not obviously topical, but her work with uh, those who are homeless, those who are experiencing mental health problems, those experiencing addiction, all of that work has really helped her see very clearly that the seeds of those difficulties are planted early in life. So that, of course, as a society, we can seek to help those in need. But if we want to build a better future, we need to take a preventative approach. And so she has seen that there is a, a kind of a, a need to catalyze change, to bring people together and to help transform our understanding as a society about how we uh, invest in and uh, support the early years uh, of life. Alongside the research and a nationwide survey on early years, there's also been practical action. Over the pandemic, Kate worked together with 19 British brands to donate thousands of items to more than 40 baby banks. The CEO of one London-based charity says the support was invaluable. It was a huge boost to us to both have those brands supporting us, but also to have her support and her recognition of the tough times that um, families were going through. She's done some Zoom calls with families that we've supported, and that obviously was amazing for them, but it was also amazing for the whole Little Village community. It really gave a lift to, um, to all of us and all of the amazing volunteers who were doing so much during a really challenging time that we've all been through um, and, and helped to, to recognise that commitment that everyone's been making to help families. 
Kate's latest outfits and hairstyles may fleetingly fill headlines, but this is a lifelong mission for the Duchess, just as her father-in-law, the Prince of Wales, has campaigned on environmental matters. The Daily Mail's royal editor says her work is shaping the future of the monarchy. It's taken her a while to find her voice, and that's quite deliberate on her behalf because she didn't want to go in there as someone coming from outside into the royal family, all guns blazing. She wanted to learn about her craft. She wanted to kind of become more confident with public speaking and with this convening power that she has been given. But I think actually slow and steady wins the race in this case. And I think people are finally understanding how this is all coming together and how this will move forward in her future life. And that is something that has been said to me time and time again. This is not a flash in a pan. This is her future. This is what she will continue doing as Princess of Wales and eventually when she becomes Queen. The dynamic duo have ambitious plans, from transforming the way society thinks about early childhood to tackling climate change. We can expect plenty more from the Duke and Duchess in the year ahead, and no doubt Kate will hope to see the fruits of her efforts in the decades to come. Well, surely there's an OBE in the post for Rebecca English after that very patriotic Christmas tree. Jess King there. And if you want more on Kate at 40, be sure to check out this weekend's You magazine, which is looking back at her life and her royal career, packed with fascinating insight, some beautiful pictures you may not have seen before. There's only in this week's Mail on Sunday. Be sure to check it out. I might be biased being the editor, but it doesn't mean it's not true. It's fabulous. Back to my panel now. And Richard, what do you make of the role that Kate has carved out for herself? All I can say is thank God for the Duchess of Cambridge. Now, here we are talking about Prince Andrew. You've got Andrew. a T-shirt that no, says... No, 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 yeah. Ask Richard who he had on the top of his Christmas tree. <laughs> you know, all we, you know, after we're talking about you know, Prince Andrew and his you know, seedy friends, and then we're talking about the unpleasantness of Prince Harry and Meghan, it's just such a joy to um, talk about the Duchess of Cambridge instead. I mean, I had the privilege of meeting her you know, briefly when she split up with Prince William. And then to compare her then... Oh, did you, did you think you were in there, Richard? <laughs> what did she say to you? I, I was already taken by that Do you think that, that that's point, why she ran screaming uh, <laughs> back to Prince William? <laughs> but, but anyway... Was she in that boat? Is that her Amazonian days? <laughs> but to see her now, how she's transformed from that shy person, you know, at that party when I met her then, to how she is now, it's been a real wonder to behold. And... Um, mm. I think, you know, we're lucky to have her. Tessa, it has been said by some that she chose to follow a path set by the Queen Mother. Do you think that's true? No, I think she models herself on the Queen. I know she will be... Funny enough, there's an article in You magazine about that very fact this weekend. Is there indeed? Um, And I've also written an article about Kate for the Mail Plus. Everyone's written an article about Kate for this weekend, but yes. Um, I think... I mean, she's consort, obviously, like the Queen Mother. Um, I think she has actually better dress sense than the Queen Mother. You know, it's hard to remember the Queen Mother as anything other than a very old woman, though, isn't it? You know, but especially for, the, for us who sort mm. of overlap with that later period in her life. Re-Kate, she's fascinating. We've talked about this before. She was always an old head on young shoulders, both in terms of style, in terms of approach. And of course, now she's coming into middle age, dare I say it. And, and, and as a result, seems kind of young in that role because of the, the older peg she's always, always taken. I think you have to acknowledge she's been in training for this role her whole life. A lot of girls were who were born of her Williams' generation. Life. A lot. I I can tell you. I remember picking up the Sunday supplement 
And I was born in 74. William was born in 81. And I saw Diana with her baby. And I remember sitting there thinking, would I be too old to be his wife? So if that was me, okay, in the Highlands of Scotland, seven years was, too old. Yes. Just think what could have been. <laughs> Take that right out of your head. But are you telling me that every little girl from Kate's class living in Berkshire didn't have those same thoughts? Are you telling me that all the mothers, like Carol, didn't have that same idea? Just briefly, fleetingly even. But actually, in order to be able to grow and surprise in the role, you do need certain accomplishments. We haven't moved that far away from the 18th century. And Kate is just... That, that beautiful, you know, piano recital. It was just, it wasn't only pitch perfect, the timing, the surprise factor, it, dare I say, and it might not have been deliberate, but it was a bit of a Yabu sucks. Can you play the piano, Megan? Well, was it? There was a little speaking, bit of I mean, I was about to ask you, Richard, there's, we've seen, apart from, the, you know, the, the dark days of tight skating, who made who cry in the Megan Kate scenario there, we've, we've seen very little controversy from her over the years, haven't we? I think, um, particularly with Middleton family, you know, have been wonderful. I mean, we used to have quite a lot of fun in the press with her sort of black sheep uncle, Gary. Oh, yeah, Gary. But yeah. He, even he was yeah. quite a genial figure who... Um, Gary's a great name for a black sheep uncle. said a few yeah. things out of turn. I mean, the, the best thing was when in Ibiza, you know, the party island in Spain, he had um, a, his villa there was called, um, I think, La Maison de Bang Bang. Um, that, that was a classic. That sounds very Berlusconi, <laughs> doesn't it? But yeah. you, you think his parents have... Um, sorry, Catherine's parents have never really given interviews and if they have it's been strictly to do with the business mm. um, they've they've just behaved impeccably and really set an example to you know some other members of the family you always hear that you know the press like to reach around and they do want a bit of gossip they want an edge they want a controversy or a scandal mm. and Kate deliberately doesn't do that and it's a wonderful self-preservation tactic silence is golden does she learn that from her grandmother who worked at Bletchley Park and signed the Secrets Act does she learn that from the Queen mm. you know where does she get that from but she absolutely has nailed it you were talking about hair. her being silent but you know this, she's very passionate about this early years project how do you see that panning yeah, out her and in again, the grand scheme she's she's taken her time apparently it was Prince Charles that told her to take her time I think what's interesting though is the relationship between those two you know, the way she greeted him on that red carpet at the Bond premiere, there's clearly a deep affection. And I think that can could help rehabilitate Charles. But in terms of yeah, her pick, she's taken her time. She feels very secure, I think, around uh, the, the role of being a mentor for young people. She's been a mother of three. She clearly enjoys it. She clearly feels she knows that whole language, that space. She comes from a very secure family herself. I also know old people who have met her actually at Bletchley Park, one of the veterans who just found her a great listener, who found her gentle, who found her forthcoming and interested. As you say, faultless. So write an article about that, Richard. <laughs> We do every week. And, uh... <laughs> Basically, I didn't know what to say to that. That is all we have time for here on Palace Confidential. My thanks to Rebecca English, Dr. Tessa Dunlop, Jess King, Richard Eden, and as ever to you for watching. See you next time. Bye-bye.